Let's be honest, most digital banking experiences just aren't that amazing. Learn how more than 180 banks worldwide, including Barclays, Deutsche Bank, and BBVA, innovate faster with Strands as their trusted fintech partner. To find out more, visit strands.com today. Critical mass. That's what turns the smallest ventures into life-changing forces. Reach critical mass by joining Temenos Open Marketplace for fintechs. Opening up access to 2,000 of the world's largest financial institutions. Don't just take our word for it. Temenos Marketplace has just won Reader's Choice Best Emerging Innovative Technology Product and Service at the 2016 Banking Technology Awards. Join Temenos now. We make the money go round. Welcome to the first ever episode 32 of our podcast, Fintech Insider. My name is David Breer, and as always, we're coming to you live from London in the heart of Fintech up here in Level 39. 2016, wow, what an absolutely insane year it's been so far, from Brexit to the US elections and everything in between. And we've got some great guests to unpick it all and try and make sense of it. Today, we've got Dave Birch, Director of Innovation at Consult Hyperion, Isabella Kaminska, an FT blogger for Alphaville, and Ben Brabin, Chief Executive of Level 39. Today, we'll talk through the first half of the year with what we think have been the biggest stories of the year and bring you the second part of the year later on this week. Enjoy the show. Excellent. Let's get into it with what's been happening in the news this year. Uh, ben, can you quickly say hey? Hello, I'm Ben Brabin, Head of Level 39. Dave, likewise. I'm Dave Birch from Consult Hyperion. And Izzy. I'm Isabella Kaminska, a wannabe mermaid, but also writer for FD Alphaville. No, I'm not really a wannabe mermaid. Oh, yeah, it feels like we're going to have to explain that at some point <laughs> in terms of doing it. Yeah. Um, so what we're going to do now is have a little bit of a step through memory lane. Um, it has been a pretty amazing year so far in terms of everything that's gone gone on. And uh, and maybe at the 20th of December, there's still a lot of uh, chance for it to go wrong so far. But let's uh, see where we get to with looking through the year. And actually, the year kicked off with quite an interesting one. So back in January, we had... Oxfam publishing a, a report stating that the world's 62 richest people are as wealthy as the rest of the half of the population, which is quite terrifying, I have to say, in terms of where we are. Uh, it seems like only a second ago that the US were holding its sixth debate for Republican president and Donald Trump stepping in to many people's disbelief in terms of where we're at. Um, and sadly, one of the, the major things that happened in uh, January was David Bowie's death. Bowie, Bowie, I'm sure I'm getting this wrong, Chris. But <laughs> as a, a big fan of, uh, of David Bowie's, then um, what, what significance in this? We saw see a, a particular news story that came in the BBC talking about Bowie bombs. Yeah, it's a sad time for me as Bowie was my hero. Um, and he died two days after his birthday after releasing the album Black Star. Um, in fact, had an amazing creativity moment in the last years of his life, which uh, resulted in a couple of um, albums, which he owned the rights to. But it turns out that he didn't own the rights to some of his biggest music in the 1970s. So he owned half the rights to Ziggy Stardust, Lad and Sane, Heroes, some of his biggest albums, sales. And the other half were owned by a stitched up contract with his manager, Tony DeFries. And so um, Bowie wanted to buy DeFreeze out of the contract and get those rights back and uh, came up with this innovation of basically selling out asset-backed securities on the investment markets called Bowie bonds, which meant that um, you got a guaranteed 7.9% interest return on the assets uh, over a 10-year period. And um, if they outperformed, you also got 
increased returns above that um, in terms of outperformed in sales. He got $55 million, the Bowie Bonds, from Prudential Financial and paid $27 million to Tony DeFries to get the complete rights to his whole music collection back, which actually is not a bad thing because when he died, he was worth £135 million, which is not bad going for an old codger, as <laughs> Dave Birch would know. How, how much are those Bowie Bonds worth at the moment? Well, there's only a 10-year period, then they expired. Right. Um, how much were they worth uh, when they expired? Well, what was funny is that Bowie had predicted that music would become like electricity and running water and that they'd be worth nothing. And in fact, by 2002, they were valued as junk bonds. Bowie was a genius. He was, absolutely. It's the first, the, actually, the first LP I ever bought with my own money was, was Aladdin Sane by David Bowie. The funny thing is, from my side, that I was actually recollecting a lot of Bowie stuff before he died just because um, over the years I've been forced to get rid of quite a few of the treasures I'd got. Uh, for various reasons and so I on eBay for example just before he died I got the demo version of his first ever single huh, for wow. about £30 oh, you know, cool. whereas in, in the height of his career it had been worth more like sort of £5,000 so Bowie, so, junk, Bowie Junk is in my house. <laughs> Don't you, you're, you're kind of alarming a bunch of people to the property that you've got inside your house now. I'm sure it's all it's all very well insured and, uh, and you're very well protected. All and, uh, we won't yeah. release your address. Publicly. And you have to watch out for the Rottweilers, the laser guns, <laughs> and the uh, electricity cables in the front door. That does it. Okay. Um, one of the other major things that happened in January uh, was smartphone-based uh, UK bank Starling getting an additional 48 million backing. Jason, a little bit more about mm. this one. This is a bit crazy. Um, Harold McPike, which sounds like a pseudonym to me, but apparently not. Uh, Bahamas-based quant trader reportedly put $70 million uh, into Starling, one of the four new digital banks that's sort of launching in the UK. Um, you know that that's against Atom's 135 million of investment. Tandem is, has apparently uh, reportedly got uh, 100 million. Monzo at 15. So this was this was quite a chunk. So yeah, 48 million suddenly pushed uh, you know Starling along. It's interesting you call them digital banks rather. I think the the, the title challenger banks, which gets thrown around, I, I'm a, I'm a little un, uncomfortable with because I, it's not clear to me what they're actually challenging. You know, they've all gone out and bought essentially the same core banking systems as the incumbents. They're all offering the sort of very similar services. I mean, they're, they're offering niche versions. Of but it's like they're not really doing anything amazingly new, I don't think. Well, they think. are because they've got hip, cool, trendy names. <laughs> and they're starting with a bank sheet of paper and no one knows what they're like. So it's really exciting. <laughs> so, so Starling and Monzo. But I think digital is a better word than challenge. Starling and Monzo haven't gone out and bought core banking systems. They've built them from scratch. Cool. So um, you've got uh, Atom on uh, FIS, Tandem on Fiserv, but Monzo and Starling are, are building from scratch. Just for just you know what you say, you can't do real time banking. You can't do sub accounts and multiple accounts. You can't but, do multi user permissions. So you need to to bring all of these things together with that sort of real time intelligence. To, to up the game, to deliver yeah, those I think what Dave's getting at, which I do agree with, is that are they really creating new products and services that we haven't seen before in the financial markets, or are they just the same products but jazzed up with a bit of digital? Well, you haven't seen any of them yet because none of them have been launched. So, yes, I think that they will be like, fundamentally Atom is out there. It looks rather similar to the mainstream bank products. I can't, I can't really comment. The, the, pro uh, the products might. The I, you may say that, Chris, but I couldn't possibly comment. <laughs> Just mainly a question of overhead. No, I think I don't think so. I think traditional 
people in traditional banking look at a digital bank to say, well, that's great because we've got a cheaper back office, no branches, and can deliver the same kind of commodity product for, for a lot cheaper price. But I don't think that that's the case. Really, we're looking at the 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 virtues of the smartphone and digital about real-time intelligence, context, being extendable through APIs, uh, enable you to de- deliver intelligent digital services to end customers that actually uh, do things for them rather than give them access to basic data and basic transactions. So it really goes from just being able to say, well, what's my balance today and what have I spent money on, to actually helping people get through the month, m- navigate that payday to payday, deal with it, with all of their sort of personal so finances. This is where it really creeps me out because that's basically the one service I want from a bank, knowing my balance and knowing where I spent my money. I don't need a bank helping me navigate my payments from one month to, to the other month because I feel that's a massive infringement into my civil liberty and it, it blurs the line between what banks should be doing and what banks are trying to do. Um, well, I think that's I think that's a valid um, you know valid concern, and maybe you're not a target customer, um, but there are definitely people out there. That the UCLA research has shown that people who are given that kind of uh, assistance drop their monthly spending by fifteen percent because they they suddenly get a, a much better feel for where they are can see where their money's going and actually you know there are a, there are millions of people out there who need help with their but day-to-day the point, finances the point i'm making is that it's behavioral what you're trying to influence it, i mean this is where where the nomenclature gets interesting is like is it a digital bank is it a challenger bank or is it a lifestyle manager because quite frankly it sounds much more like the la- last point to me well, I think you know if you if you Which, put you know, if you put uh, Izzy's communist ranting to one side for a moment. Um, <laughs> do you remember a couple of years ago when nudging was all the rage? Um, we worked on a project. Uh, it doesn't matter what, but it was to do with to, to distributing payments to, to welfare recipients. And it turned out that, as I recall, anyway, quite small amounts of nudging had quite significant results. I'm quite prepared to believe that. I, I'm not utterly convinced it will be the bank that's doing it, though, because I could sort of imagine if you do move into this open API space, you know, why would I want the bank nudging me? I mean, I might choose, you know, I might choose Saga to be my nudger, right? I mean, you might choose some hip and trendy thing that I've never heard of. You know, you might choose some staid and sensible. So the idea that, you know, will you have some kind of AI big data cloud thing sitting on your shoulder trying to help you navigate? To me, that seems quite plausible. But I agree with you. It's not transparently obvious why it would be the bank. What, um, you know, what do, do you think, think Jason? Ben? I'm curious if uh, that's a, clearly a contentious issue because of the, the nudge effect and the, uh, the privacy concerns. But by building from scratch, are there capabilities, if you like, killer, cut-through capabilities, which you think will come to characterise in the minds of consumers uh, the real benefit of, of this new approach? I think it's that enablers, the things that I was, I was talking about in terms of when you look at the core banking systems of old, they were made for you know one account, one balance, one user. They were made, they were made around batch-based systems. You know they were made for a different type of product. But actually, yes, the the nudging, the being that um, you know Jarvis, that Tony Stark sort of assistant, being on your side, not being the traditional bank in the brand of. You know, it being a bad landlord, but being a great waiter, being there to make things just a lot easier, and for that, that makes a difference. But you know, there's this great thing that makes everything easier. It's called money. 
because money, just having money, allows you to dodge all those like lifestyle frictions. And um, the problem is, money. most people don't have money, and there's a reason they don't have money. Is because if we gave everybody money, there'd be massive inflation, and we'd be overrun, and and, and there'd be no resources. So the Which whole the whole point of banking is about rationing people's behaviours so that there isn't a run on super yachts, right? Because we would all probably do that, right? Yeah. As a wannabe mermaid. Um, but so th- th- this down. is where I just find it very kind of naive of the tech space to continuously say it's about systems or systems architecture or like functionality. What you're trying to do is create systems that make people think they're getting everything they want without realizing they're not getting everything they want. This is a very patrician turn to the conversation, though, isn't it? I'm mean, curious from a consumer perspective. If you're if you're offering people nudges, corrective uh, therapy in their financial personal financial management, electromagnetic shocks. Well, perhaps also. yes. It, 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 I'm just curious <laughs> if there's something which you, we'd we actually be prepared about... to speak up to to sort of like the, the common person, the common man who's who's got a sort of has grown up with expectations about their bank, and I'm wondering if there is some cut through capability which these new approaches in potential. In, in, possibly offer which don't also come with a kind of patrician payload you were using patrician in a very kind of negative sense there i think one of my favorite statistics is that we live in a country where 51 percent of people don't know what 51 percent means which is why it's completely pointless having all those aprs and nobody understands any of this are you talking brexit no, no, I'm talking no, about no. the UK. I'm just, I'm just saying. Fifty one percent voted for leaving. You know. <laughs> <laughs> it's, just, it's just happen coincidence, isn't it? But I think. But you know what I mean. Like, is, is, is there's actually a bank that's launched predicated on this whole conversation, which is Loot, and Loot's been launched primarily because students and young people. I think it's absolutely useless knowing what's gone out of my account after the fact. They'd rather know what's going to come out of my account before it goes out of the account so they can actually plan for it and work out if they can have that Friday night out on the town, which they want to have. No, I can see that having So they're trying to to invite patrician and paternalism back into their lives after being They're trying to invite control, as in rather than just paying something without me knowing that it's going to go out of my account. And that's what's wrong with millennials today. They don't rebel. They do the exact opposite. They invite all the control mechanisms Kid, back into the We're going to have a revolution, but only if we're allowed to. Look, there are times if you've got an AI nudge parrot sitting on your shoulder, which says, wait a second, that's not really your estate agent you're sending that money to. That actually seems to be an account somewhere in Bulgaria. I mean, that would be rather useful, right? Um, do you want it to go down as far as, you know, should you really be buying those donuts? I don't know. I think maybe in some circumstances. Some people do, some people don't. But actually, if some do, are they intrinsically wrong to want that service? And are you intrinsically wrong for giving them the option of having that service? I, I, th- I, think, the, I think the reality is that banking has evolved to be a generic service today. And actually, the optionality of something like a loot, which is very niche in terms of what it can bring and the features and functionality can, can meet niche audiences very 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 well so for those people who do want to have a a warning that you know spending money at uh crispy creams or uh, other donuts uh, chains are, are available as well then uh, you know that is a, a thing that can be open to them in terms of well, doing given that so many people leave school without even a rudimentary understanding of financial services i mean shouldn't that parrot be compulsory for some people well, but, but, I mean, but maybe this is maybe this is the thing. Maybe, maybe we'll we'll get there. But I, I think probably this is one of the ones to talk about when we get into predictions, because actually, obviously, all these organisations are coming to the market next year, and really, I guess, us understanding what their impact will be. So, 
let's crack on because we're only got through January and there's a lot of months to go. <laughs> so February, we've got um, some pretty horrific things happening. I'll be honest with you. So we, we had the uh, Pope Francis coming out and actually questioning Donald Trump's Christianity over his uh, protestations that he's basically going to be building a wall to keep out the Mexicans and making them pay for it, obviously. Uh, we had the Zika-linked conditions being ramped up and a global health emergency being declared in terms of where we were. And we had Tim Cook confirming oh, that Apple will not... What happened to that? It, it, it turned out to be marketing of some description for something. I think it was a, a paid PR a thing. thing. It is. I think it's still a thing, but I think they've got it under control now, haven't they? Oh, so cool. it happened in February. It's all fine by December, right? So, um, And we had uh, hackers actually trying to steal $1 billion from the Federal Reserve. Um, and apparently this was one that I clearly missed in terms of where we're going here but they only managed to steal 81 million before a typo actually alerted authorities to the problem didn't which alert the is authorities hilarious. it alerted, it, the alerted the, um, it was one of the German Cam- banks wasn't it yeah. Really? Yeah, the counterparties knew it was happening <laughs> terrifying 81 million before anybody noticed so but this story that story got even better really I mean because after they tried to get that money back and they followed the chain of transactions. I think it ended up in Indonesia. No, no, and it ended up in the Philippines. In the Philippines, the that was it. In the, in the casino industry. And um, they found the guy, like some in- intermediary between Big Boss, and he's they forced him to bring the money back and he was bringing it back in like wheelbarrows wow yeah. that, that, that's like the, the equivalent of getting like a 50 pound fine and paying it in one piece right yes, he was just literally bit making it as difficult as you could and then there were these like great photos at the end um, where, where the officials were standing with these big loads of wads of cash nice how much of it did they get back I think I don't want some wanna, fraction but it was a sizable wedge alright oh, cool a sizable wedge of one dollar oh, it, it, it sort of talks to um, some of the, the security and the way money moves around the world. I mean, somebody managed to walk into a central bank, steal some codes, and then could do untold damage. There are rooms you can walk into still and move significant chunks of money around the world, like really significant chunks. Try and move a billion, but certainly move a couple hundred million. Um, it it's sort of speaks to the fragility of that system. There are these big towers that are hard to get into, but there are some places where those towers aren't that high. So about, about I would... social engineering, I mean... With social engineering, you can get you in, in anywhere and do anything. Mm. I would just like to point out that I had a, an interesting insight into this recently by doing a sort of undercover but not really undercover story where I was a delivery driver for a couple of days. Oh, that was a oh, I love to see this. And I love that story. One thing I discovered is that once you put the delivery uh, uniform on, you become invisible and you can walk around anywhere. Really? It's amazing. Yep. Good heist plot. And I still have that uniform, so if anybody needs it... Invisibility cloak. I did offer it back to them. They they didn't want to come So did you actually deliver stuff? Yeah. Wow. What, on a moped? No, no, on a bicycle. Okay. We've just confirmed um, one of the sort of guys who claims to be one of the world's greatest hackers for a speech at the club on the February the 1st and he tells exactly the same story but as a pizza boy and basically going in and then can walk straight in past security they, they buzz him through and uh, go up to the fifth floor to the secure data centre and put some ultraviolet spray onto the pin um, code sit down for 10 minutes go back shine an ultraviolet light on the ultraviolet pin code you can see what the pin number is someone's just walked into the data centre do whatever you want the, pro- pro- the problem is always the human and I was literally standing outside the FT office in my uniform and people I knew were walking past me not noticing me that's normal isn't it ha ha harsh um, moving on um, so into March we had uh, oh, oh. increasing go on Izzy were, just sorry is this a mermaid did, story you, no you did mention Pope Francis and I yeah. feel that as a Pol- Polish non 
practicing Catholic, I should point out that Pope Francis was a bit of a hypocrite in that story because okay. the Roman Catholic Church likes to build walls. Mm, that is true. Yeah. Okay, they so have a bit of a history of that, don't they? Yeah. Um, so, March, we had the EU migrant crisis deepening as Macedonia, Croatia, Slovenia closed their borders to migrants traveling north. Uh, Google's DeepMind beats everybody at Go, apparently, and the Forbes Rich List is released with Bill Gates topping the charts at 75 billion worth, which is freaking terrifying, isn't it? So, uh, But there was a sad story for the billionaires that apparently the number of billionaires has shrunk to only 1,810. So, oh. poor, poor them. It's going to be a tough Christmas, isn't it? I, I mean, I, I love that deep mind story. I, I watched some of those Go, um, you know, matches. And there was a particular move in one of the games that they called the sort of, you know, the move from God. It was held up as being, you know, the most sublime, amazing, creative Go move that people had ever seen. Um, and it was just a non-human move. Mm-hmm. It was nothing mm-hmm. that anyone would ever, you know, make. And this, um, you know, artificially intelligent, you know, deep learning algorithm had played, had gone through all of the entire catalogue of Go games that had been played and then played itself for a few million games and then watched other people and then had essentially taken on one of the best players in the world at arguably a game where you just can't predict the next move. There are so many of them and and, and won, trounced him. There's a really good article um, and I, I wouldn't say that... Um Mark Zuckerberg is a fantastic author, but he did write something on Facebook a couple of days ago that actually was the most accessible discussion of where machine learning and um, AI, in quotation marks, is really at. Um, because he tried to build Jarvis for his home, as, you know, inspired by Tony Stark. And he comes across and stumbles across all of the major problems, which are that actually, one, he found he preferred to talk to it in text form rather than actually talking to it with his voice, and maybe the future isn't as talking to our machines. And the others were really around... He could teach it a specific game or a specific task, but he couldn't make it learn new things for itself. So it's not really intelligence. It's not really learning things. It's being taught things, which I think is is kind of a really important point. So I'd recommend anybody looks up Mark Zuckerberg's um, recent uh, discussion of his Jarvis home computer. I thought it was the most accessible read on AI I've, I've read yet. I think there's two, two things in there. Clearly, they've got a small child, and anybody trying to use a voice interface with small children around knows it's futile, basically. Yeah. You can't get a word in it twice. Did you see the thing where somebody put Google Home next to Alexa and mm. got them stuck Infinitely. in a do-loop? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, then, and then the second one in there is, like, he's had a year at it. Like, he spent how much money in a year and decided it's hard. You know, yeah. like... Uh, mm. IBM have been investing what hundreds of millions for yeah, but three decades doing it himself. Yeah, it was well, one of IBM, two personal um, challenges. One, he wanted to run 365 miles. Secondly, he wanted to hand code sort of AI for his house. Or clearly, a, he's a not involved interface. in day-to-day running a Facebook as he <laughs> needs to be, really, isn't he? I think my favourite uh, Google AI story this year was when they had three programmers that um, ran side-by-side side and they wanted one to send a message to the second one and for the third one to find out what the messages were. And after a few cycles and iterations, which is millions probably, um, the first program could send encrypted messages to the second program, which the third couldn't understand, but equally neither could Google. They couldn't work out what the hell they were talking about anymore. <laughs> which so. was the bringing of Skynet. It is. <laughs> it is. <laughs> well, there's, there's still, uh, what, sort of, uh, you know, 31 days left of December. The, the rise of Skynet in, uh, in the end of the year might still happen. So um, one of the major things that happened in March was Barclays pulling out of Africa. Simon, what's your thoughts on that one? Yeah, so it, it happened very quickly after Jess Staley arrived. So there was definitely some Jess Staley wanting to put down a marker, but also I think there were some um, problems uh, from, a, from a kind of geopolitical 
uh, and also probably economic perspective. So, um, you know, there was volatility in global markets. The uh, commodities were in a downturn. There were uh, African currencies, especially rand, was was really deflating. Um, the slowing of China was, you know, really affecting the the currency markets um, for, for South Africa. And South Africa is the biggest market for for Barclays Africa Group. And they have 45,000 employees down there. It's a substantial operation. On top of that, there are also some tax reasons why they were being taxed at a higher percentage than their holding of that organization. So it just seemed like Jess Daly, one, wanting to say, here's some really quick return I can deliver. But two, it's sort of a signal that we don't believe in this Africa rising story that's been really kind of pushed over the last few years, um, which I don't know that um, if uh, if that's true or if it's just more of a short-termism thing or if um, you know the Africa Rising thing is a myth, um, but it was it was certainly an interesting one. I don't know if anybody else had thoughts on the on the story. I mean, I think it's just another another side of the the same sort of decline of correspondent banking as well. I mean, the, for me, you know, I've, I look at this very simplistically, maybe. But I think the challenge, again, is behavioral. It's not um, about making better systems or whatever. It's at the end of the day, are the systems, the law, the um, regulations in place in those countries to effectively maximize their potential? And you can be the best bank in the world, but if the framework, the actual legal underpinning framework of those countries isn't there to support you, it's very hard to maximise your, um, your I'm not, returns. I'm not sure it's that. I mean, Barclays pulled out of Italy, pulled out of France, they pulled out of most European operations. Well, there's Just studies recycling with them the back European to focus framework on being, as well. Well, Just Studies re- recycling them to be a, an investment bank, basically. Yeah. Um, and knowing Absa and the guys in South Africa in particular, um, I think it's maybe more a concern, and his behaviour may be, that um, the money transfer networks exposes in Africa, particularly Somalia and other countries, of nested accounts and the possibility of getting caught in AML traffic is, right. is one of the big concerns. I, I think it's also, risk. it doesn't help that Zuma can't count. There's two things. There's the risk compared to the profitability. So like if you're yeah. moving into a currency pair where actually you're not getting a lot of transactions, then it's not profitable for you given the risk because you're gonna to have to go get a correspondent bank in that market and then you're gonna to have to spend a ludicrous amount of money going sitting with them for four weeks figuring out if their processes are any good and then just basically rely on them because if you that's the only option you've got as a correspondent bank is you know bank in the UK, let's take Barclays, picks a bank in Senegal and goes, you are on the hook for our entire liability. And if you guys do something wrong, we can get fined untold amounts by US and European regulators. But then it's unfair on the Senegal or Somalian operations that they then get thrown off the network, basically, because Mm -hmm. they can't get access to global net networks. But it's an issue of trust. I mean, fundamentally, you're either there on the ground yourself and being Mm -hmm. being a colonialist. With cost. (laughs) Or you're allowing a local partner to help you at you know some other sort of cost but there's always going to be a cost absolutely um you know there's a cost to colonialism as well i mean i am you know i'm not advocating colonialism but like it is that's the reality of the situation if, lots if, of things are coming around in fashion though so maybe sort of good old-fashioned colonialism will come back around and we can well, you know ride Mark the seas Andreessen again tweet earlier this year as well that you know he thought colonialism was underrated yeah yes, give it a, give did. it another go yeah we might argue that facebook and google and some of the big players are, are doing that by another another fashion it's not religion now it's tech that's being you know exported and tried you know making its way into second third world well i'm i'm on the 
colonialism isn't a great idea side of things but if you want to advocate it that's great <laughs> maybe we'll get on to that into the predictions one that'll be one for next year hey? um moving moving forward i guess into april and uh if one of your favorites died in january chris then one of mine did in uh, in april so prince died at only aged 57 which is i guess a surprise although there was uh, rather extenuating circumstances involved wasn't there in terms of what we're doing um, we never had, became king would he, he have voted king. for trump I, given the reports, I'm not sure he was leaving his house much to do anything of anything really. So maybe maybe sending a letter in potentially. But um, I wonder if he would have been on the side of anybody given the, the race in terms of how it panned out. But what do you think? Um, Prince. Um, I mean, I thought he was going towards the kind of conspiracy side of the spectrum. Of everything. Yeah. yeah. So I would have thought he was a natural Trump supporter. Supporter, really. But I don't know. <laughs> I'm not sure there's ever a natural Trump supporter, but we'll, uh, well, again, we'll come to that one later on in the year. Um, we, we had the first baby born of three parents, which is quite an interesting one to, to come out with. Uh, and also we had the Panama Papers, which was 11.5 million confidential documents uh, from an offshore law firm leaked, which is um, pretty freaking terrifying, and actually led to Iceland's prime minister actually resigning after it showed quite a large conflict of interest. Uh, anybody got anything on that one at all? Well, I think that was back in the days when conflicts of interest mattered. I mean, I think we're... <laughs> are we beyond that? We're now? in a post-conflict we, of interest we, We've world. gone past that now. I don't think it would matter We've colonised conflicts of interest. Hang on a minute. I think this is silly because... Okay, I'm going to defend David Cameron because <laughs> he was the one that really suffered on the back of this because so the, the leak showed that he had some account where he had a bit of money in there. His dad, wasn't it? His dad. Mm. But, like, you can't expect... I mean, we know he's a spoon. I mean, it's nothing that we didn't know before. Um, what do you expect? Is, is, is being a politician going to be the same as becoming a Jedi? Are you going to have to give up all your worldly goods um, and possessions? Um, I mean, perhaps, perhaps we should make pol po uh, being a politician some kind of, you know, ecclesiastical order. But um, I think there are limits to that. I think we do get into a, a, a broader debate there because it's not the best like as a prime minister it's not the best paid profession ever in terms of doing stuff so like turning it into some sort of monastery where you hand in or like say you get no, get rid of your family and friends it's just asking people to put things into a blind trust sure so long or, as at least, or at least their father's name rather than to disclose everything so if we can trust people out of sight rather than with full disclosure that's perhaps a compromise which we can all live with potentially I think it's a difficult one, though. I think every, anything anywhere on anybody will be dug up at some point, right? And, and actually, uh, we do get slightly sort of house of cardsy in terms of how much of those things are uh, being exposed to certain people and used against their will, shall we say, in terms of, uh, you know, manipulating where people are doing and how people are but, voting. But, but also there's a temporal mismatch. So, OK, so you're like someone like Tony Blair... You don't make money, or perhaps you do when when you're in office, but you make shitload. Looks, can I? Oops. Feel free. You, you, make, <laughs> you make lots afterwards. Um, so whether or not you know, I'm currently poor, or if I plan to be super wealthy tomorrow. I mean, these. Do you think it's right though that people hold that against him? I think Tony Blair is maybe a particularly subject, but you know, keynoting somewhere for a hundred grand. Actually, given we paid him reasonably poorly for however long he was in, was it eight years he was on office, nine years? Well, he was did in? you see that George Osborne has made five hundred thousand pounds in nine speeches since he left office? 
Yes, you need to step your game up, Chris, clearly. I was going to say, (laughs) I'm not charging enough. (laughs) But I think there is something about attracting a certain degree of talent. And to your point, you can attract just the the priests and nuns to to a certain profession. But then, do you want somebody that isn't just that person or character type? Do you need humans who have a different level of talent, who who may have more of a motivation after that to profit? Or who are known to be deal-makers, with an excellent sort of historical background in, in construction. I don't know. <laughs> but but there's also a generational thing. You know, you look at social media and you know, millennials putting everything and anything on their from their Friday night to, you know, who their girlfriends, boyfriends are on social media. Are these the politicians of tomorrow? Is this is the the veneer that everyone has to be perfect if they're in public office or doing a senior job? going to have to be eroded by the fact that everyone's documenting their well, normal the, lives. No, no, I think the, the, the dividing line is hypocrisy. You know, if is I, it? Why? I'm hypocritical every day, all the time, any if, minute. If you, because I defy you not to be hypocritical as well, Yeah, but Dave. I'm not standing for office. I mean, it doesn't I, matter. If, everyone, I, if I stand like, for office on the, has, on the grounds yeah. that you should pay your taxes, yeah, but it's impo- and then I don't pay my taxes, that's it wrong. It's impossible to be non-hypocritical because that is the nature of the world. We're continuously contradicting contradicting ourselves. If, oh, I, if I was to like analyse anybody, I would find like hypocritical so, statements somewhere. So I think, you know, we, we criticise Trump, but at the end of the day, at least his, his flaws are, are transparent. Unlike Christine Lagarde. Or, yeah, Junkers. <laughs> the list goes on. I think the thing is, I, sure I, don't, true. You don't, I don't think Trump is in the space where he's trying to hide it, or more to the point where I'm not sure he could hide it. I'm not sure he's even aware of it, yeah. though, to be honest. Maybe. maybe <laughs> but, and it's weird, though, that there is a, a voter a trust for his untrustworthiness. So the fact that he's so like obvious and transparent about all the things that he does wrong is actually winning him a large period of votes, which sort of speaks to the general mistrust of anybody not having transparency. So I think, Jason, you're right. There is a demand for that uber transparency of, of, of everything coming from you know, uh, certain segments of the electorate. No, I know. I think it's. Uh, I think it's. Uh, that, but that seems to be the, you know, the a, reaction a, against Clinton, right? I mean, people don't like that she was from the system. They they had vague, vague ideas of she'd done this, done that, but just had a feeling that there was something they didn't know about. There was something happening with the with the trust and the foundation, but they didn't. They couldn't put the finger on it or articulate what it was. But then you know you've got Trump who's falling over every other week, but at least they know where they stand. With it. So on that basis, Kim Kardashian is the perfect president. For some people, I'm sure she is. Because she's lived her life in the public eye to that degree. She really has. Really, so like every what, second. I mean, there's nothing Casey we Price don't... Casey Price for Prime Minister? Yeah. Celebrity <laughs> Maybe, we, you know, bring her back. Is she still around, Katie Price? Is yeah, she, yeah. You're one brilliant. of those people who thinks that idiocracy isn't a democracy. I'm, I, it isn't a documentary. It's hypocrisy. I'm more, I'm more, I'm more gloomy about that sort of thing. And at that point, I feel like sort of humming the Monty Python song. There's always a, you know, always look on the bright side of life, Dave, on that one. But um, Dave, did, uh, Ben, did you have a point on that? Well, I, it sounds to me as I've listened to this as though there is not just a problem with trust, um, but also authority. And so people talk about post-truth and we've touched on sort of the, the questions that arise post, post-public office as well. But I wonder if, um, and this is as true with financial institutions, I suggest, as it is with politicians, um, the nature of what people base their trust upon is evolving very fast. Uh, and um, when people talk about post-truth, of course, you could challenge them by saying it's just not the truth that they are most comfortable with. Mm. So I, I think it holds, and I'm making a bit of a prediction, so maybe come back to this later, but uh, a good question for all of us looking forward is how we establish trust, whether indeed we should learn much more from Kim Kardashian uh, than from the, uh, the Victorian models we may have inherited. 
Well, maybe well, this, a bit, is, this is where this is where my technological determinism runs into your buffers, I think, because I I sort of think if we are going to make some progress on this, it has to be at a fundamental technological level, because I think you know identity, reputation, blockchains, whatever else, ambient accountability, etc. Whereas um, I because think... I don't think individual people can be can possibly deal with all this information anymore. I, th- I think individual people can't be trusted. I think if nothing else, we've learned across the. Uh, course of it or, or rather I guess as an individual they can but as a mass they can't I think that's the that's the, the problem maybe actually that's what we've seen as a reaction across most of the things that have happened this year but but that's the key point isn't it my individual spirit my human spirit is linked to the point that I have uh, choices in my life some of them are good some of them are bad if you start deterministically um, sort of guiding me towards this path rather than that part, you take away my human spirit. No, no, I'm, I'm looking for technological underpinnings for, for understanding reputation rather than... But reputation is based upon how you act when faced with two choices, right? So you can act badly or, you you know, this is the lesson of Pinocchio. <laughs> but, but I um, think I could build an app that could help you live a better lifestyle. <laughs> well, it, does it just literally toss a coin? Like, uh, yeah, but but I, I think on, on that though, I think there's a there's a reality of how people say they will act and how they will act. And I think you know, as as people who sort of live in London, we see this most of the time, right? You'll kind of get nice, normal people that will kick you in the face to get onto the escalator for like a split second faster than you. But actually, in normal life, will be fine. And it's like it's the context of action that actually people move in. That I think people really just underestimate in terms of what what's there. Um, you know, the reason why people are voting very similar to to what you're saying is, uh, and I think in America, as in the same as the UK, was not for whoever it was they were, was put forward. It was just for dramatic change. Um, you know, Clinton was more of the same. And actually Trump was just like, what's in the box? Um, yeah, and I think that's let's happened, not forget right? that, you know, uncertainty brings positive things as well. You can't have opportunity without uncertainty. So uncertainty can be both good and bad. And when you have just, you know, predictable meh in front of you, you will, like, roll the dice and, and you know... Well, get, as get Confucius big. said, chaos is a ladder. Indeed. You are just was it Confucius? No, actually, it was the guy from Game of Thrones. <laughs> <laughs> but if, you, if I said that, you wouldn't take me as serious. One of, uh, one of the major things that did actually yeah. happen in April was a crash of London's 2.7 billion unicorn. So, Jason, this seems like a bit of a... Talking about Game of Thrones, This these guys kind of rose up and uh, down they went, right? Well, this has got to be everyone's favourite uh, story, isn't it? A story of Christmas parties with bottomless champagne and topless dancers. Apparently, they bought in um, 200 million of investor money, uh, claimed to be worth 2.7 billion at one point, and then through a series of, uh, I guess, interesting uh, financial decisions, were spending 2 million a year on rent, 25 million a year on staff, off of revenues of 5 million. Um, so they, the, but the they most, were, no, no, they were pre-revenue. I thought. I, no, I, I found a, a listing somewhere saying that they they bought in five. I heard that they were pre-revenue. The, the most it's interesting story, though, was that Power started from a company called Vendor. That was their original name, and they got their start by buying the resi- residual technology from Boo.com. So I, I wonder if it's the curse. Is it the curse of Boo.com coming through? And uh, vendor becomes power that then did sort of buying goods via QR codes with mobile uh, kind of POS terminal stuff and building sort of web shops. 
Um, but yeah, that was um, that was the curse of Dan Wagner, actually. Oh, yes. well, I mean, that's probably much more. Yeah, yeah his, his story is like if you look at his background, it's it's yeah, he, he did everything. Apparently, the chief financial officer was a guy who used to wash his cars. Really? Yeah. Wow. And basically said to him one day, what, what do you want to do with your life? He said, I want to be an accountant. So he helped him take the exams and then hired him to run all his financial affairs. Well, at least he made him take the exams. Didn't yeah, just, exactly. He didn't just like, so he you know, qualified. throw him straight in there. <laughs> as well as gave the cars good clean. Indeed. Uh, moving into to May and um, I guess the, the major thing here that uh, happened, Jason, much to your, uh, your happiness, was Le- Leicester City winning the English Premier League. <laughs> Did you actually bet on that one or not? Because it was 5,000 no. to 1, right? No. I mean, what a crazy story! The film is coming out, so it'd be interesting <laughs> to see how that uh, how that plays. Sounds good. Um, and also in May, we had Sadiq Khan is elected as mayor of London. So this is the first Muslim mayor of a Western city, which is a Ooh, Donald Trump won't like him much. Pretty oh, he doesn't, does he? Yeah, uh, he may not be allowed to come to London anyway, so that'll be fine. Exactly. It'd be interesting um, to see what Sadiq Khan means for London fintech, because for for all his foibles, uh, Boris Johnson was a vocal supporter of quote unquote fintech and London being the, the fintech. Tech City, so um, w- I haven't really seen those noises coming out of the um, the London Mayor's office for a while. Um, I'm not sure what that means. Yeah, they, I guess they've got their hands full with a, uh, a couple of things going on, haven't they? At the yeah, moment. yeah, but uh, they'll, they'll get back to it. I'm not sure. least Southern Rail. Um, and one of the major things that happened in that month was so the computers threaten stock pickers' role. Apparently, this is AI starting to get into uh, taking over and stealing all our jobs. Chris, what's your thoughts on this one? Well, whatever can be automated is being automated um, from robo-advice to peer-to-peer lending to trading. And so it's really down to the fact that um, you don't need high-paid traders who often are as good at stock picking as a monkey, as some uh, sort of researchers discovered. Um, and you know, replacing traders with coders is really the trend that we're seeing, which is the banks don't need lots of physical assets and buildings and humans anymore if they can code it. And where they can code it, they are. I mean, I think it's the same story as what's happening in UK branches, in the, which came out with a report last week saying that um, 10% of the UK branch network has shut down, 25% of HSBCs. And it's all about digitalizing whatever can be digitalized and getting rid of the overheads. Because you can't compete with the challenger digital banks if you don't do that. I think it opens up a really interesting kind of phenomenon, which is the, which is the sort of robo reshoring. So, what banks did in order to get costs down was to move things like call centres overseas, and and all the back office functions overseas. Now those those functions are being brought back, but they're not being brought back with people. They're being brought back with racks of servers, instead. So unless unless Trump has got a plan for deporting robots as well as Mexicans, I don't really see where this jobs recovery is going to come from. And software engineers, because somebody has to write those algos. Um, so there's the the thing I was saying about AI earlier is you can teach it stuff and it can do some trading by itself, but somebody constantly has to be adjusting that software. So the role has kind of changed. Um, so whilst you don't need the the trader themselves, you need somebody who knows about trading and mathematics who can constantly tweak the algos. Yeah, but they're not going to get their H one Bs, are they? So yeah. So I I will dissent as usual. Um, <laughs> I um I think this story misses the point that um. The more you outsource this stuff to computers, the bigger the opportunities for the human. Um, what I've seen whenever I've talked to big HFT shops or those that are highly dependent on algorithms is that they're 
models last in, an in, like increasingly um, a small amount of time in terms of how long they make money because the whole thing is subject to game theory it's all subject to replication to being um, you know copycatted out of out of your arbitrage this is, this is the money ball effect right um, I don't know that reference mm-hmm. you know the the the, the book about the baseball team the Oakland days where no. they just used stats they, they gave up mm-hmm. traditional scouting okay. Michael Lewis and they oh, right. and, and they yeah, and they uh, they used algorithms to build the team, and they ended up they they lost the World Series, I think, but they ended up way higher position. But of course, it only lasted a season because next season everybody else did exactly the same thing. Right. So there's a diminishing return to yeah. all this stuff. Yeah. And what I've noticed is that when you speak to traders, actual human traders, they now um, have a real you know good old fashioned physical trading is making a lot of money because. Mm-hmm. It's gaming the algorithms much more efficiently. And where the disconnect comes in is when I've talked to the really big trading houses, um, the, the HFT ones, is that these kids, sorry to say, I'm not being like anti-ageist or whatever, but um, they don't know the basics of like how commodity markets work. They don't understand the basic rules of how, how the, the mechanics of the LME work or how you take delivery of physical copper or whatever. And so their strategies are great, until the point there's a hurricane or some kind of like real world. That's the um, reason why you get the crash every seven years. Perhaps. Because often, you know, people flock in numbers, and if they haven't had the experience you know, of being burnt, then they bet on the wrong things. Yeah. And, it, and there's a really interesting article that I just caught this week, which corroborates a little bit of what you're saying, because the automated teller machine you think would get rid of tellers, and actually, tellers have been increasing in numbers for the past 30 years. They haven't decreased. And the reason is that because it decreased the cost of bank operations to have ATMs, they opened more bank centres and it's hired more tellers. Tragedy of the commons. We tend to, whatever advantage or um, innovation we, we produce, we tend to pollute our way through yeah. it so um you know yeah. this is gk chesterton's whole you know premise in life was that uh, progress is great but we've got to understand that with pro- progress always come new problems i'm training my kids to be robot repairers because there's always gonna be a role for a robot repairer <laughs> it's, it's very true and, and and it goes back to that point about um kind Have of ai is you're as good as the humans teaching the ai and actually the uh, humans that teach the ai are often not the people who can write the software but the people who have the domain knowledge in a given area um so there's uh, some friends of mine who are in uh, deep learning and the, the thing that they're trying to get into most is neuroscience and understanding how the, the brain works um and really trying to figure that out so people who are neuroscientists are more in demand than the people that can write the software so it's, it, it is the humans that tend and to and when it. you link it to neuroscience having you know spent some time with these ai guys um everyone emphasizes the, the point um the quality of the data sets and you can't actually be sure that you're dealing in quality data sets at any given time. There's all sorts of corruptions in the data, which means you're always a product of your environment. So it's always going to be like trading places, even like for an, algorithms. Moving on to June then. So we had a, a few interesting things that happened there. So uh, Brexit. Definitely the year was kind of defined by uh, probably Brexit. this event that happened in, uh, in, in the UK for us. So. We voted to leave. Um, are we going to open up a, a four-hour debate on, on Brexit again, or do we want to give uh, quick opinions on whether this was... Who, who thinks it's a good thing? Well, I think it's Brexit, because I've been paying attention. So Brexit means Brexit is the slogan. You see, you would never get an AI to, to deal with this sort of thing. Probably, it would, If you gave this to Watson, it would explode <laughs> trying to work out what Brexit is. 
So, uh, so I think for our foreign for our foreign listeners, the best thing to say is at the moment, it's literally chaos. Nobody knows what's going on or what's going to happen. Um, with Izzy's theory of chaos being a ladder, uh, it would suggest there are amazing opportunities in store for all of us over the over the next couple is of it years. Hard, soft, red, white, blue, black, or white? I don't know. Uh, it's no game knows. theory. It like, there's you're... no interest in anyone on the Brexit side revealing their, their you know, the. That's why our ambassador said it take ten years to sort it out. It may even take longer than that. It's ridiculous. Or really. it might take less. I mean, that's this is the thing. You don't expose your cards at this stage in the game. But it's but game I, theory. Yeah, but, but at that, least you have some cards. Well, that's what I was going to say. Is that that relies on somebody feeling like they have a strategy that's going to navigate us through this? Do we feel that we have that? I, I think it's, it's it's a bit more like to, to that idea that there's um, creating chaos creates opportunity. It reminds me of that scene in Fifth Element with Gary Oldman, um, where he knocks the uh, glass of water off the table and says, "Look at this! There's all these little machines now running around. Look at all this little industry came from a tiny bit of chaos." And I think there is a, a large proportion of people who wanted to create that chaos, and they don't really care what happens next. They're just assuming something will and will kind of muddle forward and it'll look kind of different, which is, you know, it's, it's a heck of a gamble, but you, you don't see the world ending as a result. So what about maybe specifically given fintech? You know, fintech, London, riding the wave at the front of it in terms of what we're doing. Do we see this as a positive or negative thing? Well, we had a debate at the club about that when Lawrence Wintermeyer from Innovate Finance was one of the panellists, and he said he doesn't see a great deal of impact on FinTech London. Obviously, he has to say that, but at the same token, he made the caveat that for payments, it'll have an impact because of passporting and because of the, the harmonised Eurozone. But for the rest of the markets, it's not really a geographical focus thing. It's actually innovation and product and service and getting the right talent and focus. And that all comes together here in London. I, I think it will be more kind of unexpected than that. As, as Izzy will remember, Lenin once famously said there are weeks Are you suggesting I'm a communist? <laughs> <laughs> I'm actually an anti-communist, <laughs> uh, if anything. You know, things just get out of control, don't they? So it could be people, that the... People just get out of control, yeah, don't it, they? It, 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 people in their place. No, I mean, I mean it in the sense that uh, in terms of economic organisation. So, yeah, it's out of control. It could be that the uh, Russian ambassador to Turkey getting shot yesterday was the equivalent of, of the start of World War One. And all things are going to spin out of control and blah, blah, blah. Possibly not. I hope not. Um, but in terms of Brexit, it could be that we're not being radical enough in our thinking because of what happens in the world of Trump and, and so on. So we could be 10 years away, not even 10 years away from London being an independent city state, for example, with its own defence treaty with the UK. We could be 10 years away from the complete breakup of the Europe. No, nobody, nobody around this table remembers the Latin Monetary Union. It was our first attempt at this sort of thing. I do. Oh, well, you do. The Latin Monetary Dave Union. <laughs> the Latin Monetary Union lasted for actually, I can't even remember. Was it fifty years yes, or something, 40, something, something like that? You know, it was one of the one of those catastrophic French experiments in money, like the euro and assignats and, and things like that. Um, and it broke up and it's gone, and now no one remembers it. Nobody remembers. I wrote a thing about this. Nobody remembers the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth, except Izzy. <laughs> <laughs> the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth was the most powerful empire in Europe. They defeated Russia and invaded Moscow and held it for we two awesome. years. You were awesome. <laughs> mm. And Absolutely. now nobody remembers it. So is it possible that in 20, 30, 40 years' time, people will be saying, 
What was that thing we used you know to belong to? The Hanseatic League. Oh, no, the EU. That's what it was, you know. I mean, when things tumble, you know, so I think in our thinking about what's going to happen, you, my suspicion is that you're not being radical enough because once, once things... Does that make to, you a Brexiteer? No, I was I was sort of on the fence. I was I was uh, I was very much you know I I thought the European Union is going to break up at some point anyway. I don't think it matters greatly whether it's this year or in five years time. Or I was more a fait accompli. I mean, I was surprised that we left, but I don't think it's the end of the world. Mm. So I'm with you. What about you, Ben? Have you have you seen any dramatic change since then? Has there been any sort of difference in, I guess, up here in level thirty nine? Well, I think you you make the point that we tend to overestimate the short term and underestimate the long term consequences of changes like this, and it's very clear we're in for a long period of uncertainty. Yeah. But it's equally clear that that it's the nature of fintech um, and indeed of of early stage companies generally that they have as their nature greater experience, greater familiarity with uncertainty. And typically also uh, the ability to adapt faster. They're than... agile. Thank you. Of course they are. Absolutely they are. And, uh, and that gives them an advantage pretty much whichever way the, uh, the uh, storm breaks. I'm glad you mentioned that because one of my major reflections on this and post-Trump is that um, all the fintech industry demonstrated they were total hypocrites. So going into these events, they were like, oh, my God, Brexit is going to be a nightmare. Trump's going to be a nightmare. And then the day after, yeah, you know what? It's not the end of the world. Can I challenge the suggestion that that's hypocrisy? I mean, I think there's a a strong optimistic bias in, and there has to be in people who are innovating. I don't think it's quite the same as hypocrisy. And, of course, they may have been speaking out of different sides of their mouth in a different way. They may have been talking about their personal feelings, uh, of course, so many of the companies in places like Level 39 draw talent from all around the world, but they may have been speaking rather more about their plans for their business after the fact, when they are, of course, looking to the upside, looking to the opportunity. I don't think that's necessarily. But you're, you're talking about. You're talking about. I mean, I agree with you, but you're talking about a very, a very small and mobile sector of the economy. So for people like us, I mean, I hate to sound horribly mercenary about it, but if Brexit goes wrong, we'll just piss off. So in terms of what it does for our business doesn't really make any difference does it because if if they impose you know crazy immigration controls and onerous visa requirements or whatever then you'll just go and open an office in latvia or something so like for these kind of businesses i'm not sure if it is that crushing i think i think much more worrying in terms of kind of tracking the unexpected it's not people like us it's it's the people who 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 voted for big changes because they thought that it would make big changes to their lives Mm. And there you do have a problem, I think, because the people in many parts of the UK who had genuine problems which were not recognised or, or dealt with properly by, by the estate, who, who I'm very sympathetic with, voted for a set of changes which aren't going to... De- you know, in, in five years' time, they're going to wake up and we haven't kicked up out. We haven't kicked out all the Romanians. I'll there still are no, be here as a poll. You'll still be here. There are no steel plants springing up all over the place. So did, things, you say, did you say Romanians? Well, I, I, you know, that's the... That's the Remain. Idea. That's the, <laughs> so what, yeah. that's the what happens then? Is that is that the what happens then is nothing. People are just disappointed. But in the US, it's problematic because when they haven't kicked out all the Mexicans, haven't built the wall, haven't repealed Obamacare, you know, haven't made new steel plants all the way across the country, the people who are being annoyed and pissed off are going to be annoyed and pissed off with machine guns, you know, which they're not in Kent. 
in the US, it has, it has more, you know, there's more potential. They'll, for, they'll for be jolly, jolly annoyed and write a yeah, really like, strong letter. Like stern letter strongly for the Telegraph. Worded. Yeah, strongly worded letter. And even then, I'm against that. That's how we deal with, you know, in the old days, when people were upset about, you know, monetary policy, they used to riot and burn down the Bank of England. Now we just write stern letters to the Telegraph. Okay, we've made it through to June. Thanks for joining us for the first part of our year-end review. Part two is coming up to you later on this week. If you've liked what you've heard, leave us a review on iTunes and come and say hi to us on Facebook and Twitter. That's it for now. 